life as, as being all about me. You know. But here's David. He, he is gushing over the thought of how much God's thoughts are just taken up with him. Now, we're going to break this psalm down into two parts. We're going to look today at verses 1 through 12 that highlight the God who is there. He is the God who is present everywhere. The next Sunday, we'll look at verses 13 to 24 that focus on the God who, who intimately knows David because he's the one who created David. So let's, with this in mind, let's join David's musings here. Again, verses 2 through 6, they're about the, the encompassing knowledge of God about David. And it's not simply that God knows a lot. It's the intensity by which God knows David. He writes, he's praying to God, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. David is is astounded here by how attentive God is to him. I mean, God knows every aspect of David's life, whether he's sitting, whether he's standing up, and he... He seems to be especially excited about how God discerns even his thoughts. Not only that, he discerns David's thoughts from afar. No matter where David is or where God might seem to be, he knows what David is thinking. Now, meanwhile, he gets caught up into this, too, about how minute that knowledge of him is. Look at me in verse 6. God searches out David's path, wherever David goes. Now, this is not the same word, if you're following along in my version. By the way, I'm, I'm using the English Standard Version. That's what's in that insert. Okay. And uh, it has that translated word of, of search here in verse 3. You search out my path. That's not that's the same one in verse 1 where it says, you know me and search me. If you have the NIV, if you're using the church Bible, it says discern. If some of you have the the, uh, NASV, the New American Standard Version, it has probably what is the best word here. And it has, you scrutinize my path. Okay. Literally, the word is this. It is winnow. As in winnowing grain, in the way they used to throw up the grain and let the the wind blow away the chaff. That's the word that's being used here. Or maybe another image is that of a miner, and he's shifting the the sand, letting go through to to try to find uh, the gold that is there. The point of what David is saying is that God is not letting anything about David obscure his search. Even David's sleeping. Everything there is uh, God is closely scrutinizing. All of his ways are laid bare before God, even the spoken word before it is spoken. So the intensity of God's searching even grows. Look in verse 5. You hem me in. 
behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Now, this Hebrew term for him is used actually in military language. For besiege is when an army surrounds a city, cutting off all means of escape. Or they also use it in terms of how someone might uh, carry their money and put it in a bag and then they would tie it and seal it so the coins could not escape. That's the idea here. And God is laying his hand upon David, who is caught in his grasp. David cannot get away. Now, this description of God's searching knowledge, wouldn't you kind of agree it's almost, it's almost suffocating? There is nothing, nothing that God does not see. There is no thought that he does not hear as if it were spoken aloud. There's no, there's no path. There, there's no movement taken outside of his encampment around David. And yet, instead of negatively reacting to, this, to God's intrusiveness, I mean, David's enthralled by this. He just thinks this is marvelous. And this is what he says in verse 6. Such knowledge is it's too wonderful for me. It's high. I, I cannot attain it. Now, in, in the Hebrew language, wonderful, that's the first word in the sentence. In the, he, the way the Hebrew constructs the sentence. And so what that's indicating is, this is the biggest impression that David has as he thinks about all this. Okay. Now, I don't know. I, I've come to learn I don't know what all the, the terms are that are used today in the younger generation. But evidently, I learned that I'm a, I'm a baby boomer generation. And some of you would know what we would say. We'd kind of phrase it in this way. This knowledge of God that he has of me just blows my mind. That's what David is saying here. That's <laughs> just great. And so he, he, he takes his concept of being hemmed in by God, but he does it in a, in a slightly different way. He now begins to think about, all right, well, what if, I, what if I wanted to get away? What if I wanted to escape? So let's continue to pick this up in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or, or where shall I flee from your presence? And this word for flee, it's the same word that was used to describe Jonah. Remember a few years ago, we were going through Jonah, and it speaks of Jonah fleeing the presence of God. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. That's the same word here. Now, unlike Jonah, David, David's merely contemplating, you know, how, well, how could someone do it if they wanted to do it? And I tell you, it certainly would have saved Jonah a lot of headache. It would have saved him a lot of troubles with sea storms and and big fish, if he had only been meditating on Psalm 139 before he tried his act of running away from God. But let's see what happens, beginning in verse 8. Let's read from verse 8 to 10. Okay, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. All right, that's the highest place. Let's go to the lowest place. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Let's see if I can go quickly. If I take the wings of the morning 
and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. There's no fleeing from God. The Lord is everywhere. High as heaven, to the lowest depths of the earth and to seeing, God is there. The speed of flight makes no difference. So that David then thinks, okay, if I can't go anywhere, maybe there's some place I can still kind of hide. Well, he tries that out, verse 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. There is no escape from God. He is everywhere. He sees all things, nothing, no one is hidden from him. But again, now note, David has not been moaning this. He's not like Jonah. He doesn't want to run from God. He's not, he doesn't want to be out of God's sight. The kind of runaway that God, David has in mind is more like sheep. They're not trying to run away. They just tend to, to stray. And they need, they need a shepherd's hand who will bring them back to their safe fold. That's what he's bringing out in verse 10. He describes what it's like to be with God. Even there your hand, what? Shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. This is the same type of wording. Lead is the same word that he uses in Psalm 23.3 that he also wrote. He speaks of his shepherd who leads me in paths of righteousness. This is what David is saying. The shepherd is with me. He's always leading me, guiding me. I'm never alone. I'm never running away all by myself. He takes hold of me. And he keeps me in his fold. So God is not merely, he's not merely present wherever David should go. He's watching over David. He's taking care of David. Just as a shepherd tends his sheep. There is no place where God is not there for David's good. See, that's what this is all about. Well, what lessons can we gain from this? Well, I want us to think first of all about this. Our response to God's being there will reflect what we believe about God. Now, let's go back to this. Go back, you know, in verse 6. If we had taken out David's response to all of this in verse 6, where he's talking about how, how wonderful this is, okay, we might look at this, particularly these first few verses, and we might be thinking that he is bemoaning God's intrusion in his life. I mean, you look at these again, the depictions of God's behavior, it can make you feel claustrophobic. I mean, God is... He's hovering over us. He's examining us. He is, he is enclosing us, hemming us in. He is laying his hand upon us. But we do have verse 6 in the psalm. And that is what sets the tone as the psalm being one of praise. David loves God's omniscience. 
His, his knowing everything. God's omnipresence is being everywhere, especially as they relate to God's attention to him. He likes this idea of God watching him. He, he likes that searchlight beaming down upon him. He likes that every corner he turns, there's God. He likes God's attention because of what he believes about God. Let's turn to another psalm that David also wrote in which God presents his concept, or David presents his concept of God. It's, it's Psalm 36, and I'm going to read verses 5 to 7. He's thinking about God, and he says this. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds, your, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. See, it's love. It's God's steadfast love. It's God's faithful love that is precious to David. And that makes God's attention to him something now to delight in, not something to groan under. You know, even at the very end of the psalm, in Psalm 139, we'll see this next Sunday, David's going to invite God to keep up the searching, to search his heart for sin. He's going to want the holy God who judges sin to lay bare sin in his life. How could he desire such scrutiny? Because he knows that the holy judge is also the merciful Lord, whose intent is always for him that he might be righteous, that he might himself grow more into righteousness. God's intent for David is always, always good. And so it is for you. If you believe that God's interest in you lies in his desire to to kind of to oppress you, to to keep you on on a leash, to make sure you're not having fun, well, a psalm like this is unbearable. You do not want this kind of God prying into your life. But if, like David, you know that the just judge of all the earth is also your creator, who loves you with a steadfast love, then you bask in the attention that he gives to you. Is there nothing more exciting than to find that the person you you love the most loves you even more? That the one who, who fascinates you, your mind cannot take it all in, acts as though he is just as fascinated with you? As Nat King Cole sang and his daughter with him later on, it's incredible that someone so unforgettable thinks that I am unforgettable too. That's what's moving David. God loves him so much. Now, the second thing is what we believe about God will reflect the relationship that we believe we have with him. Who is God to you? Now, that certainly affects the way that these verses will affect you. 
But if you see God as kind of an ever-watching, ever-suspicious boss who, you know, cannot trust you, so he's always having to keep an eye on you. Or, I don't know, maybe some of you read the, the novel 1984. What might come to your mind is the image of Big Brother always spying on you. There's that image of God hemming David in and laying his hand upon him. I mean, it made me think of the, the lab researcher, you know, who's observing, manipulating the mice in his maze. Or maybe the image of a stalker comes to your mind. Now, what kind of relationship with God, though, is guiding David? He's not thinking any of those thoughts. No, he, he's thinking of something that comforts him when he writes about God's attentiveness. Well, there's another psalm that gives the answer that he wrote, and one that you know well. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now, David had been a shepherd himself, and he knew the attentiveness that was needed to care for his sheep. He understood the love that must accompany such attentiveness. There are several images used to depict God's relationship to his people. I imagine king is the primary one. But time and time again, the writers go to God as a shepherd to express his love and his tenderness. And so Isaiah, when he gave the great news of of God redeeming his people, he, he wrote of God in this way. He said, behold. The Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his, he is recompensed before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the, the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Isaiah chapter 40. Do you know God as your shepherd? Do you know that when he is there in in front of you and he's behind you, that means he is there for you? That when he encloses you and he lays his hand on you, he is keeping you safe in his arms? That when he searches out your path and he looks into your thoughts, he's looking for what will harm you? As he tends you and cares for you. As your shepherd, he is your redeemer. Your redeemer who rescues you, cares for you, and who will lead you safely home. That's the message that comforted David. That's what he's trying to express here in this psalm for others to read and and to know and take heart in. The message that he is giving that this psalm is giving is this. You are never alone. There is no place you have ever been or ever will be that your shepherd is not there with you. There has never been a darkness that has hidden you from your shepherd's sight, and there never will be. Friends, family, heroes, anyone may fail you. Whether they're Their love might falter, or simply, they can't be with you all the time. But your shepherd has always been there for you. 
your shepherd always will be. Now, he might at times feel distant, but that's no more than what you feel. It's not the truth. God remains there for you, despite your feelings, despite your failures, despite your faithfulness, despite your rebellion. Because his love is a steadfast love. And his faithfulness is just that. It's, it's faithful. Your feelings cannot send him away. Your, your failures cannot turn him away. Your, your running away cannot discourage him. Which leads to another message. You can't run away. You cannot run away from God. You, you may try traveling to distant lands. You might try getting away from your home. You might try losing yourself in a city or, or out in the country. You may try a different crowd of friends, a different way of life. But you will spot the shepherd again and again, especially in the unlikeliest of places. I remember a young man who told me his testimony. It went like this. He was raised by a single mother who was intent on her son not becoming religious. They lived in Texas, and she feared that he was coming under the influence of religious friends. So for college, she sends him to Berkeley. Isn't that the safest school one could be in, safe from Christian influence? And that's where he found his shepherd, his savior, and came to a saving faith. There is no safe place to escape the saving shepherd if he has claimed you for his own. He will pursue you. And if you have known him in earlier years, know that he will, as Jesus taught. He will come after you as a shepherd searching for his sheep who has gone astray. If you have never professed faith in him, know that if he has decided that you will be his, so it will be. The testimony of everyone who has come to faith is this. Not that they found God, but that they finally gave in to the God who would not go away. And indeed, finally, let's remember this. So intrusive is this God. So intent in his pursuit of us. It was while we were enemies, as Romans 5 tells us, that the shepherd sent his son to reconcile us to him. Listen to how the son, Jesus Christ, described his mission. This is from the Gospel of John in chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep. He's speaking of us. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. God the shepherd sent his son, the good shepherd, to gather his sheep, to care for his sheep, to lay down his life for his sheep. 
This is what it means for God, for the Lord, to be there for you. He's not there simply to check up on you, to keep you in line. He is there to care for you, to protect you, to save you, to draw you into his loving embrace. And so I want to say to you who are, to you who are parents and grandparents, and you're concerned for your children and your grandchildren who have, who have strayed from the shepherd's fold, I want you to lay hold of this psalm and its message. What does the shepherd do when the sheep has gone astray? Again, Jesus tells us. What does he do? If he has 100 sheep and one goes astray, he goes after the one who is lost until he finds him and brings him back. Your child, your grandchild, is not lost from God's sight because he or she is not alone. The shepherd is with them. And in your faithful prayers, I want you to claim this psalm as you call on the Lord to bring them home. Now, I want you to note the significant way in which Jesus described his mission. He says he came for his sheep. Now, he was speaking to his fellow Jews, and they would have recognized him as as speaking of themselves. But he, he mentions that other sheep that he has, that he has, not that he will have. Now, that he hopes to have. He's speaking of sheep who do not yet know that they belong to him. They do not know yet that he has his eye on them and that he will be calling their name. But what if? What if you're not one of the sheep? What if you desire to belong? Desire to to know the shepherd and to be known by him? What if you no longer want to be alone? In this universe. And you want the God who will be there for you. Well know this. That the shepherd turns no one away. Who will come to him. Do not worry that your name will not be called. The shepherd knows you. The shepherd is already there with you. And if you will have ears to hear. You will hear even now. His voice calling you. We give you thanks, our good shepherd. You are always there for us. You never will let us stray away alone. You're here for us now. You were here as we've before throughout all of our lives. You're here now. You always will be. May we have the ears to hear you. Even those who know you, who confess you, we need to keep hearing your voice. We need that faith to know and believe that you're with us. And Father, I do pray there's anyone here who is yet to know their shepherd. They will hear that, that shepherd's voice calling to them now. In Christ's name, amen.